Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1-2. Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. I am, as they say, your host, non-tenant, and with me is my extremely adequate wife, Smokey. Tell us what we're going to be doing today, Smokey. Thank you for that very kind introduction, my current husband. Today is going to be kind of a start here. So when people listen to another episode that somebody linked on their Facebook and go, huh, they can come here and figure out what's actually going on. So episode zero. Episode O. This episode is somewhat disconnected from the rest of the season because we wanted to introduce the concept of true magic as a whole without necessarily getting into all of the details that we're going to be covering in this season, which is going to be on... Clothing. Clothing. Let's start by asking the main question that everyone has when they hear about true magic, which is... What is it? Indeed. The answer will become clear as the season unfolds, because in a way, true magic is a little bit like the Matrix. No one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. And I have spent hours, I've written literally tens of thousands of words trying to summarize what we mean by true magic, and every time it basically turns into a book, because all of the ideas that I need to explain, in order to explain one idea, I have to explain another idea. And in order to explain that idea, I have to explain a third idea. And in order to explain that idea, I have to explain the first idea again. So everything is interconnected, and it's impossible to explain one thing without explaining everything. And so it really makes more sense to let the ideas unfold naturally as we work through them episodically, rather than try to introduce and summarize them all here. It actually makes more sense to just explain what our purpose is, really. So what we're trying to do is be part of the broader project within the reformed world, would you say? I would say there is a kind of interdisciplinary, interfaith movement at the moment. Interfaith? Yeah, in the sense that even atheists, like John Vivecki, are going about the same sort of project. Um, Jordan Peterson would be another one. Mm trying to re-enchant the world by looking at the, like, fairy tales are a good example. They'll take these symbolic stories and they'll say, this isn't just a crazy little tale that means nothing. This is actually a deep reflection on the structures of reality itself, and here's what it means. So we're trying to do that, but from a an explicitly biblical and reform perspective, and with a much narrower focus. We are trying to combat some of the excesses of the Enlightenment, would you say? We are certainly trying to combat some of the excesses of the Enlightenment. I'm not sure if there were anything was anything in the Enlightenment that wasn't some sort of an excess. Well, you actually call it the uh, disenchantment, don't you? The disenchantment. Which I thought was a thing, and it turns out it's just you. I think it's... I don't know if it's just me. I, I'm sure other people have called it that as well. I suspect that Chris Wiley coined the term rather than myself. But the so Enlightenment was the point at which rational inquiry started to be excessively applied. Fetishized. Fetishized, indeed. <laughs> Fetishized. Fetishized. <laughs> to the disciplines, to everything in life. And what you had happening was essentially everything was broken down into its constituent parts because a flip took place where meaning was something which you discovered by breaking things apart to see what they're made of rather than by seeing how things are built up into a coherent whole. 
So instead of examining holes, we've started to examine parts, and we're still dealing with the fallout of that in ways that we don't even yet understand. There's that very um, somewhat overquoted bit by C.S. Lewis from, I think it's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So you, you could say that the Enlightenment was this kind of colossal arrogance of deciding that because you knew what a star was made of, you knew what it was. Indeed. As people who are self-consciously positioning ourselves within the re-enchantment movement, if you want to call it that, we thought that the term true magic was an excellent descriptor of what we're trying to do, because enchantment is a magical idea. If you actually think about that word, it literally is just from magic. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to restore true magic in the same way that Tolkien and Lewis used the phrase true myth. They were recovering the concept of myth from pagans, and myth doesn't mean the same thing in Christianity, but it's not completely disconnected from pagan myth either. And the same is true with magic. We want to restore magic to its proper place, not as something wicked and perverse, which it is in pagan religion and practice, but as something holy and liturgical. When you hear the word magic, we think of it in terms of what is forbidden in the Bible, right? Necromancy and witchcraft. And so the idea that magic can be true or good is, is kind of horrifying. But C.S. Lewis used the phrase the deep magic when Aslan was talking to the witch and the idea was that what she had done was only a perversion of what was really there. Which gets us into the mechanism of magic. Why is it appropriate to use the word magic at all? Yeah. Give us a good example of magic in the Bible, Smokey. In the Bible? Mm-hmm. All right, the Witch of Endor? Okay. Kind of. What is the Witch of Endor? How does the Witch of Endor do her magic? Uh, she descends down into her pit and calls up the spirit of Samuel. Right, she descends into a pit. Now, why does she descend into a pit? Because you've got to have a pit. you got to have a pit. If you're going to go down into the underworld, you've got to have a pit. Yeah, that's Just right. like where it is. if you want to go up into heaven, which is what you're doing in true worship, mm. you have to have an altar, which is a little miniature mountain, and you ideally have a mountain as well, which is why the temple was built on Mount Zion. Yes, and why Moses went up. Why Moses went up the mountain. The mountain. So magic is a perversion or an inversion in the case of necromancy of the true liturgical practice that God actually patterns for us in scripture. So Moses goes up the mountain, the witch on the other hand goes down into her pit in order to descend into the underworld and bring up the spirit of Samuel. And we do indeed see that she succeeds in bringing up the spirit of Samuel. So there is some way in which the form of these physical acts somehow expresses and participates in and resonates with spiritual realities in ways that we do not understand, but which the Bible tells us are real. And which everyone back then did seem to understand. Like, we don't know that she would have even tried to do it without going down into a pit. She sort of seemed to understand that that is what you do, that is the right and proper way. And even the pagans, you know, they, they built their high places, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they wanted to get to the gods. They knew that they had to go to a high place or yeah. use a tree, which is a conduit between the realms. Yeah. Goes up into the heavens and down into the underworld. Yeah, they were doing it wrong, but at least they kind of had the right idea. Because these things are actually built into us at a very deep level, these intuitions, which is why you even see today stupid things like athletes wearing underwear that they wore the last time they won a game. It's because they think that by representing the previous reality, the thing that was closest to their body at the time that they won last time, it will somehow create this like resonance in the world where the same thing will happen again. Mm. They're not intellectually thinking that way. Yep. But they are intuitively understanding that the world is made in this way that such resonances can happen. Now, I'm not saying that athletes wearing <laughs> underwear is a magical ritual that actually works. I'm saying that the intuition of how magic works is built into us so that even stupid rituals like that are something that we naturally do. 
But also, yeah, I mean, we don't think that that particular one works, but I think Christians today are very uh, reluctant to admit that any of it works. Like, you hear a lot of people saying that even the Witch of Endor thing, it wasn't real. She didn't really call up Samuel. It was a trick. Right. Because you can't There's really no indication in scripture that it was a trick. No. If you read the text just as it's given, it's obviously Samuel. Yeah. And the same is true of the magicians of Pharaoh. There's no indication in the text that what they did mm, in the snakes, yeah. turning snake starves into snakes or water into blood was a trick. It was real magic. And I suspect if we looked at the commentaries before and after the Enlightenment, we would find a, a difference of emphasis, at least. A significant difference of opinion, quite yeah. possibly. Okay, so is this what people should expect from our podcast? Deep theology at best and deep weird at worst? Well, I hope not. Um, we're, we really want to be quite practical. It's, this is supposed to be a highly practical podcast, ultimately. Because our chief aim is just to answer the question that Christians have been asking since the New Testament, which is, how then should we live? How, given that we live in a spiritual and physical world and that those things have patterns which are relevant and meaningful, how do we dress? How do we eat? How do we build our buildings? How do we deal with our dead? How do we sing? All the things we do, how do we embody heavenly patterns? with our physical selves. Okay, we need to back up now. Because what does it mean to embody heavenly patterns? Tell me what the average Christian is thinking right now. I think today in the church there is a very common feeling that the body is this kind of meat prison that we're in, and it is associated with sin and, you know, the lust of the flesh and, and so forth. And if we are really holy, we will escape from it, sort of symbolically in this life, but in, in the next life we will actually escape from it, and be pure spirit and on a higher plane. Right. We've turned salvation into escape to heaven, instead of thinking of heaven as a temporary place in which we have no body because of death, which will be corrected in the resurrection. Most Christians today really think of heaven and salvation in purely spiritual terms, and they think because it's spiritual, therefore it's not physical. And this is somewhat inherited from secular atheism. Obviously, in, in atheism, the body is all you've got. And when it dies, you're gone forever, which is why so many tech billionaires are spending so much money on virtual reality and trying to figure out how to download their consciousness into a computer so they can live forever. But even in Christianity, there is a kind of paradox of the body. Paul himself in Romans 7.24 says, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Mm. And this led to this view of the body as a thing of death led to early Christians thinking in very mistaken terms about sex and even food and saying, you know, we shouldn't enjoy those things because they are sensual pleasures. But think about what Paul's real problem is in Romans 7. The problem isn't the, the fact that he is physical and that he wants to be physically living out the will of God. The problem is that the sin within him prevents that. He wants to participate in thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But his flesh prevents him. The sin within him prevents him. Mm. So the problem isn't the idea of embodying heavenly patterns. The problem is that we are bad at it because of the flesh and sin. And we know that it's not the flesh per se that's the problem because, you know, Satan sinned without having any flesh and Jesus was perfect even though he did have flesh. So. Right. So it's important to distinguish between the theological concept of flesh yep. as the, the sin dwelling in us and the physical flesh that God made. Gnostics tried to use this christian ambivalence about the body as a wedge to convince us that matter was evil and that our goal is really to be free of it which is basically the same idea that you find in esoteric and eastern spirituality today but 
It's also the same idea in a lesser form that you find in most Christianity today, that really what we're trying to do is escape Earth for heaven. The problem is that this is completely against the grain of the center of Christianity, which is firstly presented for us in creation, with the creation of man, and secondly is fulfilled for us in the incarnation of Jesus. If you think about what happens when God creates Adam, Genesis 2.4 tells us this is the generation of the heavens and the earth, which is the same language that is used later of all of the offspring of important people in scripture. Mm. So heaven and earth are coming together to create this child, as it were, Adam. Mm. God breathes his spirit into this dirt, and the dirt takes form and becomes a flesh. It becomes an, an angel beast, a man. And because of this, man is fitted to do the work of doing exactly the same thing to the rest of creation, not breathing his spirit into it, but impressing a spiritual pattern into the heavenly world. God creates this garden and he puts the man into it and he says, basically, hey, here's the pattern of heaven. It should look like a garden like this. Now go out and do the same to the rest of the world. God didn't make the rest of the world a garden. He planted the garden in Eden. The rest of the world is wild and untamed. Mm. At least that's certainly the implication. So man is made for this purpose. Man falls and he is therefore unable to impress the pattern of heaven correctly into the earth and he needs to be redeemed, which is what Jesus comes to do. And Jesus comes as an incarnate man, as not just the, the heavenly pattern impressed into flesh, but as God himself in the flesh expanding and fulfilling the pattern of Adam. And he instructs us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God wants earth to look like heaven. And when we look at Revelation and we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the final state of the world is God dwelling with man, heaven and earth being united as they were originally united in Adam. Now the whole world is united in the same way. Heaven and earth are conterminous with each other. So the creation of man is as the union of heaven and earth, and his job is to bring that union to all of earth. The resurrection of man is the union of heaven and earth, and in the final state, heaven and earth will be united, which means that we have to be in the process of building out this heavenly pattern in the earth, impressing this spiritual reality into the physical world that we are living in. In other words, when Adam was made, and God breathed into him, and he took the form that he did, that wasn't an arbitrary form. That is what God's image looks like when it is impressed into dirt. Mm. It becomes a man, which is why every single little baby since Adam looks the same. Babies aren't born with eight legs, and if they are, we think something's terribly wrong. In the same way, photons couldn't have been different. When God said, let there be light, and there was light, we know that the true light, which is in Christ, John tells us this in John chapter 1, there was the true light, which is the life of men, and that became physical. It took form. It was expressed in a physical form, which is photons, which is why photons have to be the way they are, bright. They have to illuminate. They have to warm. They have to be able to blind and dazzle and burn and shock. All of these physical elements are bound up with the spiritual reality that they are expressing. Right. Just like babies aren't born bigger than their parents. Right. That would make no sense. I mean, physically, obviously, it would make no sense. But we can't even just say, oh, well, you know, God could... But even when we say physically, that would make no sense. That's because the physical image is the spiritual. It's because, (laughs) spiritually, it would make no sense. Yes. So if we say God could have done it that way, it's kind of missing the point because God being bound by his character just wouldn't have done it that way. Indeed. God being bound by his nature and by the nature of spiritual things 
a lot of things happen when you lose this view of reality is this idea that the physical images are spiritual or that the material world is reflecting heavenly patterns and these things are now prevalent in the church today because one part of theology especially if it's central to your purpose as mankind works out into all areas of life you get bad theology everywhere mm-hmm. to give us some examples of ways in which um, modern christians tend to think which is at odds with the created purpose that we have I think we don't just deny that what we do physically, like what we eat and drink and what we wear and so forth, has any relationship with our spiritual state, but we find it quite offensive that anyone would say that at all. So, for example, you can't say that being 600 pounds overweight has anything to do with a person's spiritual state ever under any circumstances. That's just not okay to say that. And you can't say that if you're wearing sort of paint-splattered, ripped, dirty, old, gross-clothed church, that says anything about a person's attitude to worship or to God. But because it's about the heart, you know, it's not about... If you go the other direction, yeah. then you can. Because if the yes. person's ripped because he spends a lot of time in the gym, that's because he's vain. Absolutely, yeah. Because he's spending too much time worrying about physical things. Yes. And if he's wearing a nice suit to church, that's because he thinks he's better than everyone else. Yep. And he's got airs. Yes. Because he's too worried about the physical things. God doesn't care about those, right? Absolutely. And, you know, if a woman is dressed in a manner indistinguishable from a lady of the night, that doesn't mean she doesn't have a modest spirit. The important thing is that she has a modest spirit. Mm. A modest spirit is usually quite invisible. Yes, absolutely. And even, it doesn't have to just be our own personal bodies, but a church building, we take a certain pride, I think, in our church buildings not being papist, not being overly ornamented and overly expensive, to the extent that they often look now like a public toilet block that's been neglected for a few years, and we don't think that communicates anything about God. What we actually think is that it communicates our spirituality. Yeah. We don't need a beautiful church building because God doesn't care about physical things. He cares about spiritual things, and we're following God. We're so spiritual, which is why our church building looks like a brutalist 70s communist government building. Yeah. What's interesting is that the Puritans, um, in theory, they, they thought this too. They believed that you shouldn't have you know, ex- expensive buildings. But in reality, even though they built them kind of plain, they built them up on mountaintops and in these sort of dramatic locations so what? that they would Hilt-tops. look striking. Well, sometimes it was pretty far away, actually. They, were, they could be quite remote. It was a pain to get there. And so they kind of couldn't escape the desire to make it look... Because it was a sort these of these things are built into us. Yeah, and it was a certain stark and austere beauty that they didn't even necessarily entirely intend. But and now we don't even have that because we don't use sort of these natural, honest materials like that. Did we have cinder block and? And we're further down the road of convincing ourselves and conditioning ourselves to yeah. think that none of this matters and that anyone who thinks in this way is crazy. Yes. So to our eyes, the ugly Puritan churches actually look really quite nice. I mean, by New Zealand architecture standards, they're gorgeous. But in a sense, we're also a lot further down the road of syncretizing unbelief and pagan religion with Christianity in terms of the forms of things that we do, because all theology has consequences. So when you are an atheist, secular communist, you end up with ugly, brutish buildings. Yes. Because you have an ugly, brutish theology. Yep. And then the Christians come along and go, Hey, that's a very practical way to build. Yeah. Let's have ugly, brutish buildings too. Let's make our churches ugly and brutish so that it looks like we're worshipping an ugly, brutish God. Yeah. Let's make our homes uh, fall apart in 50 years or be so ugly and badly constructed that our children will not be able to leave them to their children's children, but we'll have to redo the kitchen because it's so hideous. (laughs) Right. Because the formica is dead. Indeed. And this 
it finds its eventual expression, the way that it eventually works out, is in truly atheistic thinking. When we were younger people, we were involved in apologetics quite heavily, and we used to hear from atheists all the time. You know, if I were God, I was all-powerful, and I created the entire universe, and I was making galaxies go and black holes and whatnot, it would be so silly. I wouldn't care about how people acted or who they slept with. That would be a little micromanagerial pity god. God has better things to think about. Hmm. That's the way atheists used to argue, but now you hear Christians saying that sort of thing. And it's a little disturbing because it doesn't take a lot of Christian thinking to realise that God cares a lot about the small things. I mean, he put a tremendous amount of effort into the small things. If you've ever studied, you know, beetles, it's hard to imagine that someone who... does fondness for beetles. He does. And if it takes us, you know, decades to plumb the depths of the complexity of the biology of a beetle... It doesn't make any sense to think that God doesn't care about beetles, what happens to those beetles, how the beetles act, what they do. How much more something like, you know, as as complex as sex, for example, why would God not care about that? And in the Bible itself, God devotes a lot of time to instructing people on these very, very specific, concrete, almost comically concrete things by our standards, like the colours for the curtains in the tabernacle, or what to do if one of your baskets gets mouldy, or which perfume blend you must never use except in worship. And, you know, what kind of birds you're allowed to eat. Um, He cares about that because he wrote it down. So what is the upshot? What does this tell us? Why does it matter for us, in particular for this podcast? Why should you be listening to this podcast? Well, I think it's particularly important in this day and age because we have more ability than ever to separate ourselves from our physical bodies. You know, we have online shopping, we have... The Wii Fit. We have meal replacement shakes and vitamin pills and light bulbs that can simulate daylight so that you can stay on a chatbot for longer to pretend you have a friend. And, you know, Facebook and and painkillers. We have fake sex in the form of porn and fake dominion in the form of video games and, you know, who knows what else. We can live outside our bodies a lot more easily and comfortably than people could ever do before. I think people along our lines particularly are inclined along our lines along our lines what do you mean <laughs> slightly uh, autistic introverted bookish intellectual types is what i mean the types who are naturally inclined to live in the hid space where they read about gardening rather than doing the gardening exactly yes um when i was a, a kid i found it just abhorrent that we had to do sports at school not just because i hated sports although i did but because i felt like school is a place of education and and sport has, has no place there that's not education right what, yeah. what's pe for exactly. i just walked around the field during pe i didn't play the sports yeah exactly and like in the past in various impressive periods of history this was not the case so in ancient greece at a gymnasium you would it would also it would double as a place to swell your body and also to swell your mind it would have uh, philosophy schools there um, plato himself was actually a wrestler and they think it's um it's disputed like everything is disputed from that long ago but they think that Plato wasn't actually his name. They think it was his like mm. wrestling name, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's right. Um, Plato is the the ancient equivalent of the Rock. Yeah, I tried to think of a modern equivalent, and all I could get was like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was a bodybuilder who became a, a, a politician. Yeah, but I suspect it's not quite the same level somehow. No, yeah. we don't expect Dwayne Johnson to be publishing any lunar treatises. No, I mean, I, to soon. be fair, I don't know much about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Maybe he's like an intellectual powerhouse. But yeah, I, yeah. but it's safe to say that in the modern day. Seeing the physical and the intellectual prowess as being integrated together 
Yeah, if you saw a library ways. at your gym, you'd be like, what? What's going on? <laughs> and then, like, during the Renaissance, uh, the English Renaissance, not the Italian one, um, the concept of a Renaissance man was very much, you know, you were expected to dress impeccably, be super fashionable, wearing your sword. You'd go out and kill a man in a duel impeccably and then go and write a poem to your lady love. You know, you were expected to have, like Hamlet did, this kind of combination mm. of physical and social and intellectual skills. Even in the more modern day... We have intellectually impressive Christians like C.S. Lewis, who had mm. probably a better symbolic understanding of the world than we'll ever have, yep. and never even bothered to really write it down, because he was too busy doing things with his body, with his hands, with his mouth. He enjoyed beer and smoking a pipe and going for long walks. Yeah. So during the war, one of his friends died, and he promised him that he'd look after his aged mother. And he spent many, many decades, I believe, doing that. And she was apparently quite a querulous, difficult-to-get-along-with woman and would always call him when he was trying to write deathless prose to go and make her a cup of tea or whatever. And he did it. Um, he didn't resent it. He did it quite cheerfully, I think. And then when his wife died, he adopted her two sons and he raised them. He didn't consider that because he happened to be an intellectual giant, he had better things to do than, you know, take the boys to get new shoes. Well, I've been doing a lot of this kind of thinking for many years, and you in many ways have been an unwitting guinea pig of my theological reflections and developments. So tell us, Smokey, how has this symbolic way of viewing the world affected you? I think in some ways it was a relief to feel that my aesthetic tendencies were not sinful. Like, that it isn't just materialistic and shallow to want to live in a beautiful home. Not not like an expensive fancy home, but a, a home of beauty. And I happen to think that a lot of, you know, medieval peasant huts were beautiful. To think that, you know, a church building doesn't have to be, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral, but it, it can be made with an eye to decent proportions and attractive materials, and that doesn't make you a papist. I've also, one of the weird concrete kind of things that I, I notice has changed about me is how I view death and dealing with the dead. Not that this has come up very practically for us yet, but, you know, I always used to think, well, the body is just a shell. Once the person, once the spirit has gone out of it, it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, just chuck me in a pine box or cut me up for parts or whatever, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's sort of superstitious and silly to care. Um, whereas now I think I have more sympathy towards the idea that, yes, you should respect and reverence a body, because even though it is just a body, just a body means more than I thought it did. So this podcast, like It's Good to Be a Man, was a, a podcast of repentance for effeminacy. True Magic is a podcast of repentance for our own incompetence at forming our lives as God wants. And this needs to be said because I think a lot of people think that I know way more than I do, but I am not an expert on these issues. I'm just someone who has spent some time reflecting on them and reading other people who reflected on them. And we're talking frankly about our trajectories and our struggles where appropriate so that other people can come along with us and think in the same ways. We want to take seriously the question, how shall we live? By making it specific and concrete. It's not just about taking deep theology and uh, having a good time intellectually, because that would be <laughs> entirely contrary to the whole point of what we have learned about the form of reality. It's about understanding those forms so that we can live them out. And it's also not trying to be legalists and say there is one Christian way to dress and one Christian way to build houses. We do believe in adiaphora, but we also believe that even adiaphora should follow biblical patterns. Things can be permissible while being more or less glorifying to God. Right. Most Christians, they, they 
would define Ariafara in terms of things that just don't matter. Yes, exactly. It's like the Satanists. It harm none, do what you will. They'll, yeah. they'll tell Christians, oh, you know, we're so much more enlightened than you because we have this different uh, philosophy. It's like the, the platinum rule instead of the yeah. golden rule. But that's a, a very negative way of defining Ariafara, and it's not the biblical way. We should rather frame it positively. It glorify God, do what you will. And there are different ways to glorify God. There are some things that you can do which don't glorify God at all, but they don't negatively glorify him, you might say. But there are ways in which you can positively glorify him more, ways that more accurately represent God, ways that image God better. So what we're really trying to do is imagine what certain key parts of life, like our clothing and our eating and our architecture and all these kinds of things, what those would look like in the post-millennial future as Lord Jesus increasingly impresses his will into the world. And obviously that isn't going to look the same in every culture and it's not going to look the same for every person. But we do believe that there are patterns we can identify that can help us form our lives in a way that is more fitting to the gospel and to our creative purpose. In that vein, our first season will be on... Clothing. Why? Honestly, largely because I found it interesting. I went on a bit of a research bender and I found that it was a very fertile topic. Is still on. Am continually on. Which reminds me I need to renew the library book. Clothing is just fascinating, and it was it seemed like a very a very rich and fertile uh, field to discuss a lot of these issues in. It's everywhere in the Bible. You could do like we could do a whole season just on clothing in the Bible. Honestly, it's been relevant all throughout history in every culture, even cultures that don't wear clothes really. And it sort of intersects with a lot of interesting discussions about like politics and technology and trade and class and gender and law and symbolism and wealth and identity. Everything. You can you can associate clothing with, with everything. And I one thing I really like about it, on one hand, it is very, very personal. It's sort of the most intimate artifact you can find from a historical figure, apart from their actual bones. You know, you can see the sword that Napoleon carried, and that's cool, but if you see the coat that he wore against his skin, uh, you know, absorbing his sweat and his body oils, it's just so much more kind of mythic and personal. And yet at the same time, clothing is very public and very communal and very much related to the world around. So it's like, what kind of plants and animals does your culture have access to? How technologically advanced are you? Who do you trade with? What are your modesty standards? Um, Who's the king? Does the king say that you can wear whatever it is you want to wear? Um, Is anybody making you wear things because of your class or gender or religion or whatever? I learned the other day that under the Muslim caliphate, Christians had to wear patches in the shapes of pigs, and Jews had to wear patches in the shapes of donkeys. I like pigs. Yeah, I feel like I'd wear a pig patch with pride. Mm. So just because it is that um, mixture of, of very, very personal and very, very communal, it's just such an interesting topic. Well, as you say, it touches on all areas of life, and we believe in all of Christ for all of life, which means that clothes give us an opportunity to look at a large number of ways in which the gospel affects us, and the created forms of things affect us, and gives us uh, a great deal of scope for more deeply understanding how we should be living. Same is true of food, which we'll be looking at in season two, but why don't you give us some ideas of the sorts of questions that we're going to be asking in season one, Smokey? So we're going to ask, how is modern Western clothing unique, and what does it say about our culture? Oh, you'll be very surprised at how unique modern Western clothing is. Yes. So, so very it is perversely unique. Quite, quite bizarre. Does it matter what you wear to church? Should Christians dress distinctively? 
With a little pig patch. With a little pig patch, exactly. Is modesty culturally relative? Can women wear trousers? I kind of figured we probably had to have this one there because <laughs> someone will want to know. Um, and how would people dress in an ideal post-millennial future? So that's what you can look forward to this season. The next episode, episode one of season one of True Magic, will start to delve into these questions by asking about the meaning of clothing, looking especially at the related concepts of glory and covering. Until then, stay on the lookout for any articles that we publish on our Substack. I do try to get some up every now and then. I have a bunch lined up in order to expand and clarify some of the things that we might say on the podcast. And if you are one of our paid members, look out for our Talky Nonsense, where we produce smaller, shorter, and definitely madder episodes, largely curated by Smokey, where we answer questions that might not have answers, discuss things that might not need to be discussed. Tell us about Talky Nonsense, Smokey. The first topic we're going to discuss, I believe, is should we honour the wishes of the dead? How much do we have to care about what our dying husband told us? If your dying husband made you promise to never change the colour of the curtains... Exactly. Should you never change the colour of your curtains? That sounds like an interesting question. Well, if you are a paid subscriber, that's something you can look forward to. If you are not, you can become a paid subscriber on our substack at truemagic.substack.com and we'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode.